0: welcome to a bonus episode of beyond the zero i'm host ben joining me today is diane josephowitz is an author and historian. Her first novel, Ready, Set, Go, is out now through Flexbooks. Welcome to show, Diane.
1: Hi, welcome. Glad to be here.
0: How is summer on Rhode Island?
1: Well, it's been real hot um, for the past few weeks. I don't know if you've heard about our, new, our news, of our heat wave in the United States. We've had a lot of hot weather here on the, um, the northeast uh, of the of the country, uh, and we're in officially in drought conditions, or we were until recently. But We've just had some rain, lots of it, mosquitoes are all out, Um, it's pretty wet out there, uh, but it's cooling off, uh, thankfully, Uh, and so uh, we're starting to get some of that really nice early fall weather, which I think that's the best season uh, in Rhode Island is um, the early fall. It's just warm enough, it's still warm enough to go to the beach, but uh, it's not um, oppressively hot.
0: Okay, Um, you grew up there, and you live there now, um, and your novel is set there, but what is magical about Rhode Island for you?
1: For me... Okay, well, <laughs> there's a lot of magic in this place. And I think for me, mostly the, it's the, the tiny size of the place. It's really very, the whole um, the city of Providence where I live is very walkable. I don't, I don't need a car uh, to get around. Uh, I can walk everywhere I need to go. Um, if I need to drive somewhere, the beach is, is really just a half an hour away. Um, so we have some beautiful beaches here in Rhode Island. Uh, in the winter, um, skiing is not more than an hour and a half or so, maybe two hours to the north. And so there's all kinds of stuff to do. in every different season uh, of the year, there's diff- there are different things to do. And we have some beautiful cultural institutions here as well. Uh, Rhode Island School of Design is in my neighborhood. They have a beautiful museum, which is a source of a lot of, informa- of in- inspiration uh, for me. Uh, and we have um, Brown University. is also here. I live practically on the campus. And um, it's also a very rich cultural institution. I could go on and on about the cultural riches of this tiny, tiny place, um, and everything is so close by uh, and available. Um, It's one of the things I really love about being here.
0: As people coming from outside America, I always have found Rhode Island a fascinating place I've ever been, but I've always wanted to go there. Um, One of your really interesting citizens uh, there is H.B. Lovecraft. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, I guess, his influence on the place?
1: yeah Lovecraft so he's um, an early 20th late 19th early 20th century American writer and um, he's from Rhode Island and he lived here for many years Uh, and he uh, he wrote I guess what I would call horror I think that's what people Mm -hmm. finally want to say wrote a lot about monsters stuff making weird noises under the bed that kind of um, of writing Uh, and he has a a pretty um, enthusiastic fan base Uh, there's an annual Lovecraft conference that happens um, here in Providence uh, there are people wandering around um, the neighborhood where I live, where Lovecraft, um, on the east side of Providence, Lovecraft spent a lot of time here. Uh, people wander around; they're dressed up as him or his characters, uh, and so he's he's very um, as a horror writer, he's very beloved, but he's also a, a sort of a source of some uh, consternation and discomfort because um, he was a, a great horror writer, but also an enormous racist, and the racism it pervades uh, the work that he uh, that he produced, and so um, he's hard to like. Um, but also hard to avoid, certainly uh, here uh, in Rhode Island, and um, there's a, a real confrontation pretty constantly uh, with uh, the sort of all of the goodness and badness in his work. Uh, and this is there's, there are conversations about that happening uh, all the time, uh, you know, at conventions and stuff like that. And so he's a, he continues to be an interesting figure um, more than a hundred years after he he lived. And so this is something, um, yeah, there's something very literary about Providence that mm. I can talk about.
0: Yeah, well. I- In terms of, I guess, history, do you want to tell us a bit more about the history of Rhode Island? Because I find that quite fascinating as well.
1: Okay. So um, the first settlers in Rhode Island were here, um, Western settlers were in in 1636 or so. Um, The place was, uh, the colony was founded by a guy named Roger Williams. Uh, And I like Roger Williams because um, he was um, one of these kind of Puritan guys and he started out in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and um, he was so obnoxious. In Massachusetts, that they threw him out, and so he head he headed uh, south uh, into uh, Narragansett Bay, uh, where he founded um, the uh, the the colony of Rhode Island. And uh, he's an interesting guy because he was um, he was interested in the language of the. Um, the, the people he met who were already living here um, the narragansett tribe particularly and he wrote a dictionary uh, he came up with a dictionary in the narragansett language which is still um in print and available um today i don't know how accurate or useful it is but um he definitely spent some time uh talking to people and um trying to figure out what was being said to him uh, and making some uh, moves toward negotiation and so um he's an interesting kind of person Um, In addition, um, he's not very well liked. He was not very well liked by the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And I get the feeling sometimes that Rhode Islanders are still not very well liked um, by the people in Massachusetts. And it does seem like there's kind of a nice um, historical continuity there. There's certainly um, a degree of rivalry that happens between the two, uh, the two states across the state line, Massachusetts being much bigger and more powerful. Uh, than, than Rhode Island, but Rhode Island being um, scrappy, and um, we're both both um, Massachusetts and Rhode Island residents, both drive very badly, but in different ways, and so we have a lot of arguments. About that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into your novel, ready set. Oh, uh, do you want to tell us a bit more about your background and how you got into writing?
1: Okay, yeah, um, I've always been a writer in the sense that I've been. I was always the kid with the notebook. Um, you know, kind of writing stuff down. I write to understand what's going on in my life and what's going on around me. I I don't really understand things unless I've processed them through writing. And so my life is is really spent writing. Uh, I'm trained as a historian, have a PhD in history uh, and I've written a couple of books. I'm I'm an intellectual historian. So I've written a couple of books on um, the history of um, uh, particularly Egyptology in Europe. Uh, and so um, I have a background that involves a lot of um, like slow, careful reading, uh, having to do with the history of writing. Uh, at a certain point, I made a choice to go back to school. Uh, and so I got an MFA in fiction writing. And I'd begun to, to um, at that point, I'd begun to publish short stories. And so I got an MFA uh, in New York City. I was living That's where I was living at the time, uh, from Columbia University. That was many years ago. And then I moved back to Rhode Island. Uh, and that's when I, I wrote uh, Ready, Set, Oh, it was at that point. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the history of that mm. um, development. The book was actually mostly completed by uh, about 2009, um, but it sat in my drawer <laughs> for a long time. Uh, I did try to publish it as soon as it was completed, um, but the, um, there was we were in the midst of, of, of an enormous recession. The public, publishing industry basically uh, you know, came apart uh, at that point. So nothing was being sold and then you know I moved on my life moved on I wrote a whole additional novel uh, and I didn't go back to the book for quite a while and then I did uh, during the pandemic and was able to sell it at long last.
0: Wow okay that's a pretty interesting story. In terms of that I guess and other writers listening to this was it an easy process getting that work back out of a drawer and revising or you know going back to it and or did you kind of I know because I know a lot of writers who have those kind of projects in a drawer and they kind Mm -hmm. of stay in a drawer and they move on to something else. So what was your thought process of getting it back out and putting it out in the world?
1: Well, what happened was actually pretty specific. Um, I got a a position as um, a book reviews editor at a place called necessaryfiction.com. And Mm -hmm. what we do there is we publish weekly reviews of um, new books uh, published by small presses um, in uh, in English uh, all around the world. And um, as I was getting up to speed for doing this job, I had to um, discover uh, and make sure I had a complete list of all of the small presses that were putting out the sort of work we were interested in reviewing. And as I did that, I discovered a whole lot of presses that um, seemed to be interested uh, in hearing from new writers and um, they were looking for manuscripts. And so I began to submit this, um, this book around as a result of doing all that um, that research. So there really was a kind of practical, um, specific, and concrete route from the manuscript that was sitting on my desktop, my computer, to it going out in the world. And it had to do with my discovery that there were a lot of small presses out there that were looking for work.
0: Before we move on to that specifically, I just want to ask you very quickly about your two historical books i find them quite fascinating i haven't read them but i think i would like to you've got the riddle of rosetta and the zodiac of paris do you want to tell us a bit about those two books and guess your interest in history
1: okay well the first thing i'll tell you is that they're both now available on kindle cool. so you could actually get them directly and you don't need to have them shipped uh, you get them electronically um so the books themselves these books came out of um a relationship um that i had with my my dissertation advisor uh, who knew about my interest in intellectual history. And um, I guess it was around 2007 or 2008. He said to me, it was 2008. He said to me, you know, I have an idea for a book that would be perfect for, for us to write together. I said, okay, what's that idea? And what he said was that he discovered uh, a story about um, an ancient Egyptian ceiling, a temple ceiling that had been um, blasted out of um, out of this temple situation by the, a French um, basically a French explorer and um, adventurer who was looking to sell it. And so he took some dynamite, and blasted the ceiling out of the temple and he, he brought it back to France at great expense and personal loss uh, and then managed to sell it to the king. And once it uh, made it uh, into the French sort of French national consciousness since around 1820, uh, it became the, the center of an enormous controversy because people didn't know how old it was. And on one side of the controversy were priests who really wanted to say that this um, that the ceiling was um, not very old, and on the other side of the controversy were the scientists, uh, astronomers, who were convinced because of some of the um, engravings on the temple ceiling were convinced that it was thousands and thousands of years old, uh, and they um, they were making this argument threatened the religious uh, side of, of the argument because they were sure uh, that, that that life on Earth could not have lasted that long, right? It had to be the time scale had to be very short in order to be consistent with what they understood to be biblical chronology and so there was an enormous fight about this um in france and in paris and in fact the fight spilled over into popular culture there was a, a, a vaudeville play uh, that was produced and you know that went up and came down in about five days, but there really was a play uh, based on this um, temple ceiling and the controversy that it um, provoked, and we look into this in our book, uh, and so we became very interested in this fight, and that's where the Zodiac of Paris came from. As we were working on the Zodiac of Paris, we began to discover some inconsistencies in what we know about the decipherment of hieroglyphics and some sources that we were looking at about that, Uh, decipherment and so um, the the riddle of the rosetta came out of our curiosity about those inconsistencies uh, and our effort to maybe try to correct the record to set it straight Uh, and so we wound up writing um, the riddle of the rosetta which was just turned out to be a very big book it took us 10 years to write um, where we produced uh, another history of the decipherment of hieroglyphics uh, placing um, the, um, the mathematician Thomas Young in conjunction with uh, Champollion, who's given credit for the um, the decipherment, and really trying to bring these guys together and talk about what they um, were able to agree on and what they uh, weren't and why. And so that's what the, the second book is about.
0: Okay, amazing. Okay, I'm going to have a look at this on Kindle. Thank you.
1: Good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, let's move on to Ready, Set, O. It's set in 1967 on Rhode Island. It chats a life of Tino, his girlfriend Primrose, an astronomer named Lupo, and a cast of other characters. It deals with themes of things like the Vietnam War, uh, art, protests, and UFOs. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your novel and your protagonists?
1: Well, I think you've done a wonderful job introducing them. Um, <laughs> what I will say is that um, they all have they all have their own problems, and some of them those problems intersect. So Tino uh, has just left um, medical school, and this is a problem for him because um, it makes him vulnerable to the draft and he doesn't want to be drafted. He's not real political. He doesn't have too many opinions about the war but he knows he's not ready to go and fight. He doesn't want to do that. At The same time um, he's got a girlfriend uh, and she has ambitions of her own. She's, she's a talented artist. Her parents don't support that. Uh, they want her to, to basically to teach kindergarten um, if she wants to work at all. Um, and she, um, she's in the midst of a kind of conflict with them over that when she discovers that she's pregnant with Tino's baby. At the same time, um, she's being erotically pursued by this astronomer and his name is Lupo uh, and she's she's responsive to him. And so she's got a kind of um, some competing priorities. Uh, and of course in 1967, um, abortion was not uh, a right. It was not available um, to women just as is suddenly now in the United States, no longer available as healthcare. And so she is really in trouble. Uh, and so this, this is the set of conflicts that, that that these characters are working through. Uh, and Lupo, who is her paramour, has he's got problems of his own having to do with um, how he wants to um, kind of how he wants to spend his adult life. He's making um, what we consider really at this point very normal decisions about, you know, what does he want to do? Who does he want to be? You know, does he really want to be an astronomer? Does he want to do something else? And that's that's where Lupo uh, is coming from.
0: One of the really great kind of backgrounds, this book despite the fact you've got the Vietnam War and all of the other stuff uh, involved in that time period, which is fascinating for me. But uh, there was a string of UFO sightings as well during this period. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so there really were a string of UFO sightings in the summer of 1967 in Rhode Island. Uh, and so that uh, historical fact provided um, the, the motivation, really the inspiration for bringing Lupo into the story uh, and getting him involved with the um, these sort of folk astronomers in Rhode Island who were seeing things in the sky or claiming to and creating some um, meaning out of these out of these signals. And in fact, uh, there was a, um, a publication called Probe, uh, which was uh, produced out of Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Its first issue came out in the summer of 1967. I have a copy of it. Uh, and it did the probe went on to do to do several issues but it was what it was was a was a global international compendium of news from all over about ufo sightings and so briefly when socket rhode island was the center of um sort of ufo popular ufo research and you could you know you could send away a card and get back a subscription to probe and it was this kind of it was a really cool local um local publication and it was pretty much put together with scissors and paper and paste you know like the the pages themselves look to have been Um, mimeographed right and stapled together so it's a really interesting publication uh that um just came out of came out of this 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 fad uh in rhode island and it just it it did come and go i think by the time um the the, by the time 1970 rolled around probe was no more and the um and certainly people were not seeing the same number of um, odd things in the sky
0: one of the things that i really liked about this book is the fact that you kind of i guess you use i guess some of your historical skills as well to kind of use some of those things as almost primary sources for your book yeah and you have things like these ufo sightings and you also have um, primrose and hannah who kind of write a novel within this book too do you want to tell us a bit more about uh those aspects yeah
1: of yeah okay so primrose and her primrose has a best friend her best friend nora who lives across the street and um they are um when the book begins primrose doesn't know she's pregnant she has no idea she's in the trouble that she's in. And she and, and Nora are engaged in what I would consider to be a kind of adolescent caper. And what they're doing is they're collecting all of the information they can find on romantic relationships um, in in the natural world, right? There's a wide variety of stuff that they're information they're collecting and they're collating it and they're putting it together in something that they're calling the book of love. And as the book develops, they continue to work on the book of love and the, I, the reader is given glimpses of this this joint project that they're working on uh, and how their views on um, on relationships kind of change as they're um, as they're working out larger problems and so the the book of love becomes a kind of vehicle from, for reflecting on um, the larger events of the um, of the narrative
0: very cool okay um, that period of time it's obviously a uh so much going on in America and all over the world but what fascinates you particularly about that period and how did you come to write this novel about that period?
1: Okay well um let me answer that um well let me I can answer it in two parts so what fascinates me most is that people got together uh, to make change uh, the anti-war movement was highly effective uh in raising awareness of um the stakes uh of of the Vietnam conflict and um Ensuring that it came to some kind of um, close, but that it wasn't going to be a forever war, uh, which we've had, um, you know, again and again uh, in the United States, even recently. And so I was very interested in how that happened. When I, when I began the book, I began the book in 2003 uh, after my daughter was um, was born, and she, um, the first thing that happened after her birth was that the United States went to war. Uh, in um in Iraq, that was um, the first you know the first major event and 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 I think everyone knew um certainly everyone around me knew that this was going to be a long um, engagement that maybe didn't need to happen and so this this um this idea of these kind of pointless wars wars that are, are undertaken only to um to serve the interests of um, big business, capital, oil industry, whatever uh, this was this was live for me uh, at that time because I was thinking about what it would mean to have a child vulnerable to being, you know, conscripted into this these these this kind of violent situation uh, for no good no good reason at all. And so so that's kind of where the um, the impetus came from um, to write the book. Uh, there was a second piece of this which goes back a much a much um, goes back much further in my own biography. Uh, it has to do with when I was being trained as a historian. I had a teacher. Um, who said to me said told me an interesting thing. I was studying. Um, I was only interested in what was happening around the year 1800, and I'm still, you know, very interested in that hinge in in um, European history, right? The years before and after 1800, French Revolution and um, its aftermath, basically. And so um, he stopped me at one point. He said, he said, Diane, he said, you know, you're fascinated with 1800, but you know that the years of your greatest historical. Am- are going to be in the five to 10 years before your birth. And this blew my mind, it's completely blew my mind. This, and he planted a seed. I kept thinking about this, like this, this period of five years before my birth, 10 years before my birth. Well, you know, what was it that I didn't know or I didn't understand? And I resisted it for a long time. I didn't care, I didn't want to think about it. And then I started to write. Uh, and this, this, this thing that he said came back to me um, and I began to dig a little deeper into, um, into this period I'd found so distasteful for so long. Uh, and to try and do a little bit more um, to uncover the sources of my discomfort and um, and uh, deal with that amnesia in some way.
0: Very interesting. Okay. In terms of influences for the book, did you have any specific influences when you were writing it?
1: So many. <laughs> so <laughs> many. Um, I've already mentioned a few of the historical details. Um, Rhode Island itself is 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 a, is a continuous source of inspiration. Uh, Providence, particularly with this, its its immigrant history. Um, what else can I tell you about this? Uh, and then I guess in terms of literary inspiration, actually, there's one book um, called Easy Travels to Other Planets, which no one's heard of, and it's from 1967 uh, by a guy named Ted Mooney, and it's one of these books. That, it's an American author, and he's writing in this the midst of the 19 the late 60s and that kind of crazy. Um, it's a sort of crazy, almost drug addled moment. And this book involves, um, it involves a dolphin, which was the inspiration for the dolphin that appears in Ready, Set, Oh. And I kept going back to this book by Ted Mooney, uh, Easy Travels to Other Planets. As I was writing, it turned out to be this kind of, almost a kind of a talisman for me as I was writing in, in order to keep the feeling of the late sixties kind of alive in my own, my own book.
0: Uh, I noticed that you've also got a bit of a um, what would you call it? A soundtrack to the book as well, don't you? Oh yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, there's some great music <laughs> that comes mm. out of time and place. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, sure. I discovered that after I read the book, but yeah, it was very, it was quite heady listening to it because it really does in that. Uh, yeah, it takes you back to that time period. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, yeah, and th- certainly there are some. Um, some real sort of one hit wonders uh, that come out of that period that um, my characters uh, seem seem to be inspired by um, i'm thinking particularly of that old song called the whiter shade of pale which mm. um, by Harum, which comes out that year um, and is so um, influential
0: amazing okay um, i have to ask you what you're working on at the moment
1: Okay. <laughs> well, what am I working on at the moment? Um, I've got another book coming out um, in early 2024. It's a novella. It has a French title. It's called L'Eure du Temps, is the, um, the French, it's the title, and it's in French. That may change, um, but the book, it's, um, it takes place in the same neighborhood uh, in Providence that Redisette O takes place in, but it takes place in the 80s. And it centers on um, a, a girl, she's about 15, when the, book's, when the book begins. And um, she's just gotten news that a neighbor of hers has been shot in his bed. And there's a kind of a mafia connection that may or may not be real. And it may or may not be connected to a fight that her parents are having about her mother's new car. And so the, um, the, the this new book is a kind of a family story and another coming of age story um, involving this young woman and what she discovers about her parents as she's trying to figure out what happened to her neighbor.
0: Okay, amazing. In terms of timeframes, and this is just me being a reader, I suppose, what are the, I guess, reasons for stretching out timeframes on books and things like that? Because obviously this book got that? released this year, but like in terms of like that being released in 2024.
1: Okay. Yeah, this, um, boy, I don't know how to answer this because um, the, the sale of this second book happened in the same month as the sale mm-hmm. of Ready, Set, oh. So I So I sold them both at about the same time. Uh, the publisher for this second book is um, a publisher called Regal House, uh, and they're in North Carolina. And um, they're putting they're they're becoming a medium-sized um, press. Uh, they're putting out a lot of new work, um, a lot of novels, a lot of fiction. Uh, they've got a novella series, and my book will be the first in that series, uh, as well as a bunch of um, YA and children's books, all kinds of stuff. So they're becoming a bigger publisher, and um, they they um, they took uh, this new book um, just at about the same time that Flexible Press purchased. Um, Ready, set, up. Oh. And so, this was, I think, an accident. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, but the um, but um, the um, the publisher of the second book, they've got a long lead time um, and flexible. Uh, actually, it was a very fast. Um, it was very fast in production. Um, they they accepted the book for publication, in, I guess it was September of last year, so about a year ago. Uh, and then it was through copy editing in January and then by um by the end of April it was on uh, bookstore shelves.
0: wow that's really fast okay
1: it was really fast but Regal House has got a longer they've got a longer list that they're um publishing they've got a lot more to do ahead of time and so they're taking their time uh okay. bringing out the, the second one
0: very cool and I guess with your future writing are you planning to go back to historical stuff or you know novels or novellas
1: uh okay well the future writing so um i've been writing quite a while i've got an, i've got another novel um in progress that i'm hoping to finish again for the third time um so there's there's that uh and that novel is um it's focused on an interior decorator it's like a totally different world which is focused on an interior decorator uh, who um, gets involved in the the murder of one of her clients uh, and she um, she joins forces with a, um, a local psychotherapist to solve that crime. So that's one of the that's so that that book is on my radar. Um there's a there's a, there are a couple of other smaller things that I'm working on. But that's that's my general um, focus right now.
0: OK, amazing. Um, can I ask you, what were some of your gateway books, uh, books that opened the world of literature for you?
1: OK, so gateway books. <laughs> um, I began to write seriously, to write fiction seriously my first year of college, and I took a fiction writing course, a fiction writing workshop that year, Uh, and I was introduced to a, a great large number of writers I'd never heard of before, and the first one that really um, changed things for me and my changed my sense of what was possible was actually Thomas Pynchon uh, and um, his book Gravity's Rainbow, which I read when I was impressionable um, at the age of um, seventeen. <laughs> and so, um, and he, reading that gave me a sense that you could have an enormous, crazy plot with a large cast of characters, and you could still write a book that was compelling, scene by scene. Uh, And so, so I was very interested in um, in Pynchon's work for a long time. um, His the cadences of his sentences, in addition to the the vastness of his canvases. And I'm still interested. I'm less interested in his sentences now, but he he really writes on a large canvas, and I find that to be so interesting. um, Even though I am kind of going in the, I seem to be going in another direction, um, but I'm still fascinated by books that do do that. Um, I was also introduced to the work of Angela Carter. Um, at about this time, was a British, um, a British, really, she was a, a storyteller. Uh, she brought a bu- out a bunch of novels, and she brought out um, a number of short stories, and she was a fabulous. I mean, she really, um, she she, she retold fairy tales. Everything she wrote was very rich. I was re- introduced to her work um, at about the same time I was introduced to Pynchon, and I was very influenced by um, her um, couple of volumes, one was called The Bloody Chamber, another one was called Burning Your Boats, volumes of short stories and journalism um, that she uh, put together. Third author um, from that period was Ricky du Um And she's, I think, not very well known, um, but she's an American writer. She's been on she this program. A... Has she? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So she is pretty well known. Anyway, she's a fantastic writer and mm. she had a book called Fountains of Neptune, which um, was about a, a boy who had been um, abandoned and um, taken in by a, a woman who was also kind of a therapist or a doctor. And she changes his life. Um, and he, um, he has lost his memory and his ability to speak. And through over the course of the book, he recovers all of that um, under the care of this of this woman and her um, sort of magical uh, setting. And so, so that's those are the three, I think, that I would say um, were kind of gateway. gateway wow. Critters.
0: OK, that's pretty exciting. OK. <laughs> What books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to this year?
1: I think the, the book that comes to mind immediately um, is, uh, well, I do a lot of reading for my um, my work at Necessary Fiction. Um, one of the books I recently enjoyed was um, called Stories of a Life um, and I'm forgetting the, name of the author, but I have it right here. Oh, yeah, it's Natalia Mishaninova. It's called Stories of a Life, and it's translated from Russian. Really slim book. It's probably, it's not, it's like 150 sort of pages. Um, And they started out um, as Facebook posts uh, that she wrote. And it's this incredible sort of set of stories about a woman coming to terms with her difficult mother. And I think... I just, I really enjoyed uh, her, um, her perspective on this um, on this relationship. And there's something about the writing that's really fresh. Uh, and I think it has to do with uh, the fact that I'm reading kind of revised um, Facebook posts. Uh, Deep Vellum published this, um, I think it was earlier this year, maybe last year. Um, and so I did I did really enjoy that. And I enjoyed Deep Vellum's stuff. Um, yeah, they're fantastic. In general, you know it, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Diane Josephowitz. This episode is brought to you by Winnie the Pooh Goes to Taiwan, starring Xi Jinping. To get 10% off your tickets, use promo code HAPPYBIRTHDAYJI, and you could win social credit points. Winnie the Pooh Goes to Taiwan is in cinemas now. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time for Diane's Desert Island Books.
1: 19th century novels, I have to say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in advance with a a, a sort of trepidation. Um, But Jane Eyre is one of those, uh, for me, a, a desert island book. I read it for the first time. I think I was probably too young. Um, but I read it when I was probably about ten years old, and um, I was just absolutely fascinated. I put it down, and I immediately picked it up and started to read it all over again. It really spoke to something in me that there was this young, this young girl who's you know kind of misunderstood by her family, and she's sent off to a, a terrible school, and you know she she struggles um, to find friends, and then she winds up in this like gothic um, love triangle uh, with um, her terrible boss and his wife who lives in the attic, and she's crazy, and I just couldn't get enough. Uh, of this um, of this book and it still haunts me I think this book to this day um, also on my list um, a couple of other others oh, Madame Bovary <laughs> is another one um, mm-hmm. that I've probably read too young I think I remember the summer I read it I was probably 14 uh, yeah. and um, and I just it, I, there were a whole string of beautiful sunny days and I didn't leave my room uh, because I'm just so absorbed in um, in uh, the um, struggles of this uh, sort of I guess she would say the struggles of a of a woman on the cusp of middle age who um finds herself you know she's she's very unhappy with her life in a backwater and um her frustrations at being thwarted seemed so present to me um and seemed to speak to so much to what I was seeing around me with particularly with my own mother uh kind of going through something some sort of similar changes uh that I was very interested in this and again couldn't get enough of it and then a third the third novel that I've got on my list here is anna Karenina uh, and that um again we have a kind of another love triangle um difficult uh, a sort of a difficult relationship at the center and um and a woman who is struggling to to make sense of um of her existence you know that um where she's she's the heroine of her own story and she's not the center of anything uh, for anybody else and that i think is is, is also kind of a compelling um situation uh, mm-hmm. for me at least to read about
0: okay well your desert island sounds like it will be pretty yeah nice place to live really
1: a dusty place maybe yeah (laughs) (laughs) these are old books
0: (laughs) yeah all very old books but no that's good they'll keep you busy yeah they're all thick as well aren't they
1: they're right no you can get lost in them for a long time yeah it's true
0: very cool well we should probably wrap it up I'll let you get back to your lovely day on Rhode Island um before we do do you want to tell us where we can go and get ready set oh and where we can catch up with you online
1: Okay, so you can find me online. I have a website, www.dianjosephowitz.com, uh, And that, um, that's where you can find links to uh, all of my books. Uh, you can find those books um, online at bookshop.org. You can find them at Amazon. Um, and you can find them um, in bookstores in Rhode Island if you happen to be in the area. Uh, and there's a list of those um, on my, my website, or there will be soon. Oh, I should tell you, I have a Twitter feed as well. And that's where I really spend a lot of time on Twitter. Uh, And you can find me there at um, Diane Greco, D-I-A-N-E, G-R-E-C-O. And um, I'm very happy to to say hello and and, um, interact there.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, Mm -hmm. Ready, Set, O is a really fun book. And yeah, I think you've done a great job with it. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time.
0: Thanks again to Diane Sepwitz. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at Beyond at gmail.com. Don't forget to leave us a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash Beyond Zero. We'll be back with you next episode very soon.